A few weeks ago, it was suggested to me that a good practice in this time before Christmas during Advent would be to journal answers to the question, what do you want? What are you hoping for? And I thought that that sounded easy, that I could do that in my journal. That's what my children are doing this time of year. They're making their Christmas lists. They're figuring out exactly what they want for Christmas. So to ask myself the question, what do I want, I thought I could do that. Do I want, like Nadia Bowles said in the video at the beginning of the service, do I want for Jesus to come like a holy thief and take something from me, something that I don't need? Or do I need something? Is there something that I want that I need that I don't have access to? You know, is it something like patience? I need more patience. Or I need more time. Or I need a friend, you know, something like that. Our scripture passage this morning is Psalm 80. And Psalm 80 is a request to God. It's a statement of what the people want, what the people are hoping for. So it's like they've made their list in Psalm 80. There are a few things that I want you to notice about Psalm 80 as we read it this morning. I want you to notice the way it begins. The way Psalm 80 begins is with the words, hear us, or listen. Or in Hebrew, it's Shema, like we said during the service, Shema. But this is not, hear, O Israel. This is, listen, O shepherd of Israel. So this psalm sounds like this. Listen up, God. There are a couple of things I want to discuss. Listen up, God. I have a bone to pick with you. Shema, O shepherd of Israel. And this is a really bold way to begin a prayer. It's a bold way to begin a psalm. And also, I want you to notice in this scripture passage, there's a refrain. So you're going to see a verse in this scripture passage that reappears. It's repeated three times. It's the same thing. It's slightly different. Each time that it appears, the name of God grows a little bit. And so the refrain sounds something like this. Restore us, O God. Make your face to shine on us that we may be saved. And you're going to see this refrain in the scripture behind me because it's going to be highlighted in yellow. It it shows up in verse 3. In verse 7 and verse 19. And so I'm going to ask you to read those verses, to read the refrain, and I'll read the rest of it. Would you stand as we read the scripture passage together? So Psalm 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, awaken your might, Come and save us. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. 
You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. Amen. You can have a seat. My husband Keith and I are about to have our 25th wedding anniversary. And so, 25 years ago, I was a little over a month away from our wedding date. And I was really so excited. Not just for the actual wedding, But I was also excited for a new adventure, a new part of my life that was about to begin. I was going to move to a new place, have a new home, a new job, um, live with a guy who wanted to understand me, (laughs) and was really a lot of fun. When Keith and I were married about five months, I got really sick. I had a high fever. I couldn't keep any food in my stomach. And I had these really terrible headaches. I'm not allergic to keep. I'm better now. (laughs) But this is what happened five months into my marriage. I was put on antibiotics, which worked for a time. But the fever and the headaches came back. So I was put in the hospital. And after being hospitalized, I was told that I probably had a chronic illness that would probably never be cured That could hopefully be managed. It was really so much less than I was hoping for as a newlywed. That's not what I wanted my first year of marriage. It was so much less than I thought was promised to me. The people who sing Psalm 80 find themselves in circumstances that are less than. This psalm is an outcry. That their life is less than what they hoped for. That their life is less than what was promised. A really intriguing thing to me about this psalm, about this scripture passage, is that it is difficult to find the exact place to put it on the historical timeline. Biblical scholars argue about when it was written. The historical setting has been the subject of a very long an inclusive debate, inconclusive debate. It's possible that this psalm uh, was written in the, the 8th century when the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom. It's possible that this scripture passage was written in the 7th century when Israel was just worried about their fate. But it's also possible, some argue, that it was written during the 6th century of the Babylonian exile 
The evidence is so inconclusive about when this particular passage was written that there are scholarly suggestions for its date that cover anywhere from the 10th century BCE to the 2nd century BCE. So that's a lot of ground. And I really like that. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Because it tells me that this psalm was probably used over and over and over again. It was applicable to many of God's people. We said in a pastor's meeting this week, this psalm is portable. Over hundreds and hundreds of years, over thousands of years really, this psalm has been often repeated by God's faithful people. There's a rabbinical image that I first heard um, David McNitsky, our senior pastor, use, but I've, I've heard it from other people since I've heard it from him, that describes the relationship between God and his people as looking like a married couple that's in the kitchen of their house and they're having a fight. <laughs> Maybe they're even throwing dishes at one another and they're calling names. But the thing is about this married couple, they stick it out. They stay in the kitchen. And so I want you to see that even though Israel is calling out names to God, that Israel is sticking in this relationship. So I want us to look at some of the names that are called in this psalm. Let's take a glance at some of those names. Here's the first. The first is that this psalm calls God a shepherd. But it sounds more like this. You're supposed to lead and guide and protect. You're a shepherd. So King David was the most honored king of Israel, and King David was a shepherd. The 23rd Psalm says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Shepherds take good care of their sheep. So the insinuation And the people calling God a shepherd is, come on, be good to your sheep, right? Okay, the next name that is called out by the people is king, right? You're a king. But it probably sounds more like this. You're a king, so act like it. You're a king, so act like it. The psalmist says this, Lord, you're in the rightful place. You are enthroned between the cherubim. And to be enthroned between the cherubim is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant was decorated with cherubim, with angels. And that represented the Lord's throne. That was the place where God's presence rested. And the Ark led the people uh, through the wilderness. And eventually the Ark rested in in the temple. So when Psalm 80 calls God a king... Uh, Psalm 80 is saying, you are on the throne, but we can't seem to tell. And then the last name that's called out, the last name that is called out as an insult sounds like this. And you call yourself a gardener. You call yourself a vine grower, right? The psalmist says, you secured a vine, you planted it, you found a place for it to grow, and look at it now. Look at the vine now. It sits exposed to strangers to pick from and for wild beasts to ravage. It's as if the psalmist is saying, what kind of vine grower are you? 
Now, all of the names, I believe, are correct. They're correct ways to address God. They're just used with some amount of frustration. So, I don't know, maybe this happens in your house. In my house, my children have the capacity to address me as their mother in many different ways with many different tones of voice. You know, when they want something that's really important, they'll use the title mother. When they want to whine at me, they might say, Mom, you know, or if I've embarrassed them. And then um, my oldest sometimes uses this really sweet title of Mama when she wants to be sweet to me. Or maybe when she wants something. Maybe that's when she says Mama. I don't know. But any of those titles are better than them saying to me, Hey, lady. And any of those titles are better than them just ignoring me, right? Because any of those ways that they say mom, that they say mother, acknowledges our ongoing relationship. And even if they're not getting from me what they want in the moment and their tone is frustration, they get my place. They get what my place is and they get what their place is. It's as if they say, I know who you are. You care for me and you're going to make this right, mom. That's what I hear in the names that are called out in Psalm 80 and and also in the refrain. We know who you are, and we know that you're going to make this right. Remember the refrain that you uh, spoke, that you read. It says, Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face to shine on us, that we may be saved. Okay, I took a picture yesterday morning when I was sitting out by my pool drinking some coffee that I wanted you to see. Okay, that's by my pool. Ignore the basketball and volleyball, the balls that are in the pool, and ignore the pool sweep. I don't want you to see that. But I want you to see that my neighbors have this really tall tree in their backyard. And then I guess you could also look at the basketball, too. Both the tree and the basketball goal are reflected in the pool, right? They're reflected in the pool, and that's what I want you to see. Not only that the reflection is there, but that the reflection, when you look at the reflection, it's inverted, right? Which means to say it's upside down. So when you read the refrain of Psalm 80, I want you to see that that's a reflection of another scripture passage. That's a reflection of a scripture passage that we actually said in this uh, worship service today, Ryan led us up. No, I'm sorry. It's not the Shema. We will say the scripture passage at the end of the service. The scripture passage comes from Numbers. It comes from Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. Maybe you've heard it before. It sounds like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So Numbers 6.22 is a priestly blessing recorded in Numbers. It was the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, who are the priests, tell them to bless people this way. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Those words from Numbers are reflected in Psalm 80. And I believe that they're inverted So there's a reflection of Numbers 6.22 in Psalm 80, but it's upside down, right? Okay, so we're going to look at Psalm 80, and we're going to go through Psalm 80 one by one and see how it matches up 
to Numbers 6.22. Uh, so the first request in Psalm 80 is restore us, right? So the Hebrew word for restore can also be translated as repent. And to repent means to turn toward another person. Um, and when you turn toward someone or when uh, you ask someone to be restored, it's, it's as if you give your full attention to them. And that's exactly what lifting your countenance to someone means. Either way, you're giving your full attention. When you lift your countenance to someone, um, you actually sometimes do this. When you lift your countenance to someone in conversation, you turn your cell phone off or over. Or you turn, you turn the television off. You just make sure that your full attention is given to the other person. That's to lift your countenance to them. And so, so that's what it means to turn toward someone, to repent, to be restored. That's the first part of the reflection, I believe. It's the last part of the priestly blessing. Listen up, restore us, turn toward us, Lord. Okay, and then we'll jump to the last part, which up there says save us. So the last part of the reflection, which is the first part of Aaron's blessing, and the final request is this request, save us. And I think it reflects the Lord bless you and keep you. So to bless another person, to bless another person is to project good into their life. John Ortberg, who is a preacher, says that when you bless someone, you do the spiritual hokey pokey because you put your whole self into it. So you have to think they're good, you have to feel they're good, you have to desire they're good, you have to act it out. So what Bob was saying about the Moore store check blessing people in Africa is exactly right, because not that money is taken over to Africa. Bob feels good for them, he wills they're good, he thinks they're good, and then he just acts it out. So that's a blessing to people in Africa. Um, I had this week a root canal, which was a mixed blessing, right? But um, the doctor who was doing the root canal on my tooth uh, kept saying to the nurse, because she was sneezing, he kept saying, what, what do you say to someone when they sneeze? Bless you. Bless you. Exactly. So that was really nice, and that's good social etiquette, and I wish she would have taken her sneezes out in the hall, but that's for another another time. But um, when we desire good for another person, when we bless them, we do it with all we've got. It's just more than social etiquette. You put your whole self in it. So the prayer is, Lord, save us. Put your whole self in this. Bless us. If you bless us, Lord, if you put your whole self in this, then we will be saved, right? Okay. And so then the middle piece that's reflected, it looks exactly the same. So it's a little easier to describe. It looks exactly the same in English. It's um, cause your face to shine on us. Make your face to shine on us. Dallas Willard, who uh, was a, a great theologian of the 20th century, said that um, for God's face to shine, if you wonder what that looks like, think about a grandparent who is doting on their grandchild. So a grandparent doting on their grandchild is open, they're attentive, they're delighted. That's what it looks like for God's face to shine on you. Willard also taught that your face 
and my face, that all of our faces are meant to shine. It's a part of who God has created us to be. So biblically speaking, a shining face reflects God's glory. And to reflect God's glory means that you show the power, you show the goodness, you show the beauty of God to another person or to the world that surrounds you. So in the Torah, remember Moses' face shines after Moses has an encounter with God. It's as if his face just can't help it. It's simply an effect of the encounter. Willard also taught that, um, that God's goodness, power, and beauty constantly fill our world. Fill our world, our universe, it permeates everything around us. And so glory is not only meant to be shared, but it's almost like we can't avoid it, right? Glory is to be a shared commodity. It's not just possessed by those who are holy or just by the Lord, but um, you are to get your hands on it. You are to get your face in it. It slips from one person to another. It slips from God's creation to you. It is just automatically transacted. That's how glory works. Well, what I want you to understand about Psalm 80 as Christians is that I want you to understand that this blessing in Psalm 80, the refrain that you read, shows up in the darndest places. That's what we believe as Christians. And it's really the, way, the reason that we can even practice hope during Advent. It shows up in circumstances that are less than. God's blessing shows up in circumstances that are less than what the faithful people are hoping for. It shows up in a helpless baby born to parents who have no real place to rest. Glory on the face of this father, God's full attention given to this mother, God's whole self in this infant. It doesn't make much sense. It's a surprise. The circumstances that surround the nativity would really suggest that that baby is cursed, not blessed. But maybe those who stick around long enough to hear this baby teach will hear him say, they'll hear him say a few things like, he's a good shepherd. He lays down his life for a sheep. Maybe they'll hear him teach about a king. A king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. A king who has a wedding feast for his son. And maybe they'll hear Jesus describe himself as a vine. I am the vine. My father is the vine grower. And you are the branches. Will you stay long enough to hear this baby teach? Will you stay long enough? To hear this baby offer restoration? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, you are creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and you breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, Your love remains steadfast. You delivered us from captivity. 
You made covenant to be our sovereign God. And you spoke to us through the prophets and poets who looked forward to the day that you would restore us, that you would let your face to shine on us, that we would be saved. In the fullness of time, you sent your son, Jesus the Christ, to be a light to the nations. He came as a servant to be Emmanuel, God with us. He humbled himself and he freely accepted death on a cross. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, our Lord and Savior took bread, gave thanks to you. He broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood. It's a new covenant. It's poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Come, Holy Spirit, upon this bread and this cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may in turn be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in his final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Amen. This morning, we take communion from one another. So you will serve the person who appears opposite the altar of you. So you'll walk up by two um, lines here to the altar, and there are two different stations So you can come to one of two different places, and you'll serve communion to the person that stands across from you. And we do that by breaking off a piece of bread and handing it to the person and then holding the cup for them to take the bread and dip it into the cup. Uh, You can use words to bless the person. You can say, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ given for you. But you can also not use words. You can just will and feel and put your body into blessing them. It's fine with me if you serve them silently. I want you to know, we say this often in here as we are serving communion to one another, you can't mess this up. (laughs) The table is set. Our hearts are prepared. I want you to come and let God's glory shine through you as you bless the person that appears across from you.